I'm Kevin McDermott, and this is the Faculty Profile Podcast. My guest today is Ann Parmenter, Associate Professor of Physical Education and for the past 14 seasons, head field hockey coach at Trinity. This past fall, after leading the Bantams to an outstanding season, Coach Parmenter collected awards for NESCAC Coach of the Year and the National Field Hockey Coaches Association Regional Coach of the Year. Outside of Trinity, Ann is an accomplished rock climber and guide, leading climbs for Trinity's Quest program and in the Grand Tetons for the past 15 years. As a mountaineer and expedition guide, she scaled Mount McKinley, the highest peak in North America, Mount Cotopaxi, the highest active volcano in the world, and Mount Everest, the highest peak on the planet. We'll cover some of those topics and much more as I speak with Professor and Coach Ann Parmenter on this episode of the Faculty Profile Podcast. Welcome to the show, Ann, and thank you so much for being here. Thanks for inviting me. Um, so first, congratulations again to you and the, the team on an excellent season. I'll, I'll begin um, by noting that in addition to your recognition as NESCAC Coach of the Year, uh, first-year student Kelsey Finn was named NESCAC Rookie of the Year, senior Sophie Doring was named Defensive Player of the Year, and those two players, along with junior goalie Sophie Fitzpatrick, were named Division Three All-Americans. That's quite a year. Yeah, it was an absolutely incredible year for sort of individual accolades. Um, and it's sort of unheard of for any Division Three school to have three first-team All-Americans. And I must admit, I did take a little bit of ribbing by my colleagues for that. But um, I think we, yeah, our team was just unbelievable. So um, is there a moment when, when you reflect back on the season, is there a moment or a couple of moments during a game or even off the field during practice that really that, that you'll go back to as kind of defining moments for for this year's team uh yeah I think we had an amazingly successful season but we didn't get an NCAA bid mm-hmm. and that's part of how the tournament is structured it's it's very difficult to get in the tournament if you don't win the conference and for us this year, uh, we were playing a night game. It was a Tuesday, clear as a bell in my mind. It Beautiful fall, but this night was raining. And we were, we were playing Wellesley here at Trinity. We were ahead 2-1 with about two minutes left in the game. Uh, ball went off of a Wellesley stick, and the umpire, rather than giving it back to Trinity, gave it to Wellesley. Change of possession, they came down, tied the game. Mm-hmm. They then beat us in overtime, and I remember walking off the field as clear as anything, saying to Steph McDonald, my assistant coach, that may cost us an NCAA bid. Just a gutting yep. kind of loss. And Just, yeah. it was a game that, you know, I think we thought the W was in the column before it was. Yeah. Um, and I honestly, to this day, think if, if, that, if we had won that game, we would have got an at-large bid. Hmm. And so that was a moment that yeah. really sticks with me. Even in the loss, did the team take some strength and some resolve from that from that experience of a tough regu- late regulation goal, overtime struggle with a, with an L that that carried on yeah. to success the rest of the year? Yeah, or, absolutely. Or? Um, because we outplayed that team, and you know my my sort of message is you know it, it really never is over until the final whistle, mm-hmm. and so we turned that around and then beat Bowden in overtime, in a just an amazing Kelsey Finn. Uh, only goal of the game. One, only goal one of the nothing, game. Yeah. One nothing. Beautiful pass from senior Catherine Reed. Kelsey one on one against the goalkeeper. 
uh, just an amazing moment to a team that then went on to play in the national finals. Yeah, and that 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 has to be noted that the depth of the NESCAC. So Bowden plays um, after they they win the NESCAC yep. tournament, they play in the national championship game. You guys have a tough loss in the NESCAC semifinal to Middlebury, who plays in the final four of the NESCAC yep. championship. So you have two teams of in NESCAC make the final four of Division three. Uh, field hockey. I mean, yeah. it's just. I mean, typically NESCAC has usually five, six teams ranked in the top twenty in the country. Okay. Four, five of us, very often in the top ten, and so when the NCAA's selection happens, only two NESCAC teams get selected, and you're leaving three at least at home that would beat two thirds of the competition. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Going back to that Bowden game, one nothing victory. How significant a victory is that for the program, given Bowden's history of success and kind of who they are as a program and where you feel your team is as a program as well? We've had some epic battles over my years here at Trinity with Bowden. My dearest friend coaches at Bowden. And okay. so um, it's always just an amazing, amazing rivalry. And so our players get up for it a lot of their team you know teammates that they've played with in high school play for Bowdoin um, but for some reason we we manage to really raise the stakes when we play against them we play a very similar kind of hockey because mm-hmm. um, their coach is also English so I think our styles of coaching are very similar I've had two sets of Bowdoin grad assistants working for me um, and we've actually beaten Bowdoin on a number of occasions here um, up there, we've bo- we've actually broken their undefeated streak at home twice. Um, at, at you know, homecoming was a really nice one for us to, That's great. to beat. Um, <laughs> so we've had we've had some epic battles, and last year they beat us so badly that going up there and playing them, I know they really didn't want to face us in the NESCAC tournament. Yeah. Yeah, and so this year you drew or, or ended up facing Middlebury, yep. um, and that was up at Bowden. Yes, tough and place to travel to. Yeah, Can, and tell us a little bit. Well, yeah, about that we, game. we we played an unbelievable game at home here against Middlebury. Middlebury is just a very difficult team to beat. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very strong. They have amazing depth, um, and that we lost one nothing in overtime here, yeah. uh, having had our own chances in that game. And then when we went up to Bowdoin, I thought we, you know, we could play a, a really close game. And it was just a couple of unfortunate. My goalkeeper got yellow carded, so she had to sit for. She was out for four minutes. And what kind of an infraction? Not, not to uh, get bogged down in the details. Good but question. Like what? What would a yellow card? I think um, she. Consist of? We we asked the ref to watch for Bowden pushing, mm-hmm. and the ref ended up calling my goalkeeper for pushing somebody who was was backing into her and so you know we I think the lesson there is maybe you don't ever talk to the refs to ask so but so similar to hockey ice hockey you you serve the penalty minutes off the field and then come back in I see so we um we can sub the goalie so when the goalie comes out we can replace her 
and we replaced her with a freshman who had you know really hadn't seen very many minutes other than non-conference games Mm -hmm. and so to be faced with to jump in um our freshman goalie played outstandingly but it's just a whole nother level sure um Mm -hmm. but you know i think those four minutes swung the game yeah for sure yeah um, talk a little bit about the makeup of the team. We have uh, you've mentioned Kelsey Finn, first year student, game winning goal against yeah. Bowden, and, and honored as Rookie of the Year. Um, senior defense woman and captain Sophie Doring, um, and then uh, Sophie Fitzpatrick is a junior. Is yes. that correct? So, so you have kind of a is is that emblematic of the makeup of the team? A good mix of freshmen and senior leadership and, and yeah. This past year, and I would say the. My two senior captains, so Sophie Doring and uh, Courtney Wynn, both come from Darien High School, and okay. I recruited them at the same time. Um, I know their coach very well, and coming into the program, they were both captains in high school, and so they have gone four years together. Um, Those are the kids you look for. You know, absolutely. Captain of your team yeah. in high school, love it. And yeah, yeah. they are just lead by example type of people, and yeah. they've got very different personalities which I think has been to the benefit of the team because they, different people sort of will gravitate to either Sophie or Courtney. But the bottom line is they're a take no nonsense because they're the ones coming first in all of our fitness testing and all of our conditioning tests. And so they really don't need to speak it, they just do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they're they also, they were four-year starters on our team too, which I think they have earned a huge amount of respect. Um, They set the tone. It's going to be very difficult for me. You'll never replace those two student athletes, um, but I'm hoping that our team has learned so much from them, just that they have changed the culture of this team. Um, Sophie Fitzpatrick has been elected a captain along with uh, Olivia Tapsell, Mm -hmm. and I think it's going to be a tough job for them because they need to play and continue not to be like those, but to be themselves and find their own leadership. Um, just again, from, from putting it out on the field. Yeah. Um, As you look forward to next year um, and kind of a, a new group of leaders coming in and um, new re- recruiting class coming in next year, how, how do how does the team get into the NESCAC championship game? How do you, you get that qualifier and, what are your what are your kind of goals moving forward to next season? Well, I'm somebody that's always motivated. Um, I think your your failures oftentimes are what motivate you more than your victories. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for us here at Trinity, using those as something to make you work harder is something that I always talk to the team about. And so, remembering how and who ended your season should be the motivation for why right now on a cold February day you should be putting the time in now. Um, our sport's tough because you can't go on a squash court and hit and keep the ball alive. You've got to find others to try to play. and um, So keeping the team together and trying to do individual stick work and working with strength conditioning coaches, remembering how your season finished um, and having that sort of fire in your belly, those yeah. are the kind of student athletes that when I'm recruiting, I... I'm looking for somebody who you get the sense that that's how they're wired. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm recruiting for that kind of character. Um, you get down, you get kicked, you get back up again. Well, it's, it's symbolized, I think, in the way you describe a couple of the games this year as 
super tight during regulation play, go to overtime. Some you come out on the short end, some you have, you know, really wonderful performances at the end. And that's that's grit and determination and follow through to, you know, stay with it till the end. And as we said, when you when you can identify that in a high school student and then watch them develop intellectually and physically, both in the classroom and on the field, as a student athlete at Trinity, that's that's so rewarding. So I've always uh, professionally from for myself um, said, you know, I can teach the skills. You hope you can develop your players, but um, the students that come in here, one, our sort of philosophy and team culture is to try to be the fittest team that we can. Mm-hmm. Um, Obviously, we want to be the most skillful team that we can, but to get more out of each student athlete than anybody ever thought possible. And so to have a bunch of overachievers is, I think, how we've managed to compete with some of the teams that I feel do have more depth than us. Um, So I'm starting players that on other teams wouldn't even be seeing any playing time. Um, And then just trying to support their confidence level and do they play with that chip on the shoulder and I think some play, of them do yeah, yeah I yeah. think some come here having not got into other schools um, and we turn that into a, a real positive thing for Trinity yeah. um, and then their experience here is a, is a good and a happy one but then giving them the skill set to then be super successful and and outperform where anybody ever thinks that those individuals you know might think they can yeah do are there opportunities during the summertime and as you mentioned kind of alluded to during the winter time for uh the women to to play in a league or play you know in a in an informal setting to keep those skills sharp and develop the the skills yeah the thing that's really hard our NASCAT rules are so restrictive and so to actually play in a league or in tournaments technically in the spring Mm mm-hmm off of campus, they're they're not to be doing that. Sure. However, yeah. um, they do play on campus, and then a number of them do coach some high school club teams. Yeah. So coaching, having a stick in their hand, and then in the summer, um, we do get as many involved in coaching as a way of making a you know an income. Yeah. Um, some of these students do go on to teach and coach, and so. Um, they can actually do quite well in the summer working a variety of camps to make an income and then obviously that way they're playing. And stay really close and, to the sport. Yep, yeah. they stay yeah. close to the sport. I had students last year that were doing, um, were working in labs on campus last year, but then we have two different leagues that run in the summer here on this campus. Mm. So students that can do summer internships here on campus have the opportunity to play on campus as well. Are those adult leagues? Women, yeah, like women, yeah, adult yeah, leagues. Yeah. Adult stroke uh, pickup leagues. So okay. high school kids can play in some, and then there are adult pickups at the same time. Interesting. Um, I, I learned a lot about field hockey in preparing for this interview. Um, learned it's an ancient game, um, and one of the first references, uh, I, I found this wonderful. Um, 1363, from your native England, uh, Edward III, uh, he prohibited, under penalty of imprisonment, hockey, which in reference to uh, kind of the, the precursor to the modern game of field hockey, along with cockfighting and stone throwing. So 
no hockey, no cockfighting, no stone throwing. Um, as the game developed, it, it mainly developed in England. Yes. Is that, yeah? Yep. So um, 1840s and 1850s, the game kind of gains popularity. Um, how were you exposed to, to field hockey f- first? I mean, my, my earliest memory uh, would be, I think, in middle school, mm-hmm. um, sort of the first time you know, we had an actual PE teacher as opposed to just a teacher that ran us around the gym. Um, and boys and girls together, you know, it's a, it's a men's sport in the world other than, you know, it's not in it very evident in the US. But um, so it was a PE class. So yeah. we would be exposed to every single sport in middle school. And then I had a teacher who played for a local club. And obviously I was the, you know, I was the little athlete playing everything. And uh, she actually said to me, you may want to join a club because you're good. And so she actually got me involved um, in our local club. And then I played for our county, which would be for the state. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I played for the region, the under 18 team. And it just sort of blossomed from there. Where where is this in England? I grew up on the South Coast, uh, Dorset, which is Thomas Hardy country. what South kind of a town? That area. Coastal town? Is uh, it close a, to the coast. Yeah. Um, about, um, I think we were about six or seven miles from the coast. Yeah. Um, and so that's where I was able to start. I, my rock climbing was climbing on the sea cliffs. Yeah. Um, and then my field hockey was inland. So Dorset is a very historic county. Mm-hmm. Um, the Toll Puddle Martyrs, who started the first trade union, who were farm workers, um, went on strike for better pay for the farm workers and they were shipped off to Australia for their insubordination. So mm. Dorset has a rich history of, of the start of the labor union. Um, and yeah, it's a it's sort of a county town, thatched cottages, um, stone cut from the Purbeck Hills. And it's, uh, it's a very quaint, quintessential sort of English kind of country setting were your folks athletic did did your kind of energy for for physical education and athletics come from them uh my dad not so much but my mom played field hockey in high school okay and so even you know this is before well this is sort of yeah early 1940 world war ii my mom was in high school they had pe classes and she played field hockey and so she actually now at 82 years old living in Australia fires up her iPad and watches us live streaming online so she knows the game she loves the game my mom is definitely more of a a sports fan than than my dad was Um, and so I think I get it more from from my mom so your mom, she's still a dynamo. She's, oh yeah, she's still, yeah, yeah. She. Um, uh, you mentioned shed. she was body surfing. Yeah, we were uh, the, we were body the, surfing in Australia <laughs> over the winter break, and my yeah. sister and I on the boogie boards. And mum says, "Oh, I won't bother with my boogie board. I'll just body surf today." So yeah, so she's been pretty. She still she walks, she bikes, she plays bowls. Um, she's still really active. When she was seventy, her and I climbed Ben Nevis, the highest peak in in Great Britain, in mm. Scotland. So at 70, we climbed Ben Nevis and uh, it was June, the weather was nice. Um, You know, we just kind of had sort of hiking sneakers on and we get just below the the summit and there's a snow cap and a whiteout. And so I said, I think we'll be okay, mom. And she's like, are you sure? And then 
you know, I didn't take a map or a compass. I mean, and we make it to the summit and it's complete whiteout. I get turned around and I'm thinking, oh my God, <laughs> north side of Ben Nevis is like total gullies. So yeah. I said, mom, we're not going to look for the summit can. We'll take a picture here. And up comes a chap behind us with the map. He goes, I knew you knew you where you were going. And I'm thinking, if only you really knew. So we, we retreated following what I thought were our steps, poked down out of the snow and mum's like are you sure we were safe i'm like we were fine inside i'm thinking <laughs> not safe at all here i no. am a guide gonna lose my mother on ben nevis in june but yeah she's in a white out in a white out oh my yeah goodness. it was awesome so. so the apple does not fall far from no. the tree no i see yeah um ba- back to the game of, of feel like so it's a it's a major game in yeah. england yes. um you know a, kind of with rugby and soccer and you know it's a, a major yeah game it's not i would say you know every Everybody in the UK, if you ask them about it, it's hockey and ice hockey. So okay. in England, we make the distinction. Ice hockey is not a big sport because there's just not the availability of ice rinks. Mm-hmm. And obviously <clears throat> the winter doesn't get us cold enough that ponds freeze over these days. So it's hockey and ice hockey. Um, I would say every child growing up will be exposed to it in a PE class at some point. Yeah. Uh, football, soccer is the religion. Um, rugby if you're growing up, I would say in Scotland or Wales is the major sport. Um, So hockey is another sport, sort of subset if you don't play rugby or soccer. Um, But when when, when when Great Britain makes it in the Olympics and hockey is being played at two in the morning, the entire nation is staying up to watch, Mm -hmm. so. Now, just some of the, the basics, 11 on a field. Yep. Are the positions defined? Um, I'm thinking of like how they're defined in lacrosse, um, or or are they more kind of defined well, like as soccer? soccer? Okay, yeah. so attack, mid, yeah. defenders, yes. then, who can kind of flow anywhere you go. The okay. thing, field hockey is very much like soccer because you can't hold possession of the ball, whereas lacrosse would be more like basketball. You can actually physically hold the ball in your stick, yeah, and you can you know, set a play by holding the ball. Field hockey, that's what makes it so exciting for me, is you can't hold the ball. Mm-hmm. And so it's always live. Your, def- your opponents always have the opportunity to gain possession of it. Um, but it's free-flowing. We can practice as much as we want. And those set pieces, it may never happen that exact way ever again. Yeah. And so it takes a lot of decision-making on the field by the the athlete while the game is actually happening. So that's the unique attribute yes. for the athlete. Yeah. Tactical awareness. Yeah. Positional awareness because it's and and not very defined. No. Okay. Interesting. So when the curtain goes up, I can't help them with their lines anymore. Yeah. Interesting. Um, when you say that you and Bowden have a similar style of play, can you define that a little bit more for I think, um, how Trinity plays? Yeah, I, I like to think of us um, as being fast and athletic, attacking, um, but we're not a crash and bang kind of team where mm-hmm. I think we're physically strong, but our emphasis is on finesse and good stick work tactically working the ball up the field we're not bruting it up the f- there's a, there's a plan okay. um and so in field hockey you can only use one side of the stick unlike ice and there hockey. are no left-handed sticks right is that that's correct so yeah. you you play with your left hand on the top of the stick and your right hand down the stick okay um 
and only one side of the stick is flat, the other side is slightly rounded, and that was done originally to be able to get the power um, so the weight of the back of the stick would implant the power to hit the ball. Um, and, and the athlete cannot use that back side. You can't use side that of, side, yeah. okay. but you can turn the stick over and do what's called a reverse hit. Okay. So you can actually t physically turn the stick. Um, and now the skills are developing at such a level that there are reverse. You can play on your reverse side, but you're not using the back side of your stick. So hmm. players' stick work nowadays is just phenomenal. Um, but because you can only use that one side of your stick, you attack down the right primarily because that's your defender's non-stick side. I see. That's yeah. their weaker side. So most attacks try to go down their defender's less you know less strong side mm -hmm. for some reason we love to attack down the left right to our defender's strong side but that's just that's not my plan that's what <laughs> how often, it works oh, out <laughs> oftentimes i'm like what are you doing on the left <laughs> um but that's what makes the strategy of the game you see people now on the astroturf which we have we have the surface of choice that's used in the olympics mm -hmm. the very short turf out on robin um, shepherd field robin shepherd field yeah um field turf the longer stuff with the rubber pellets slows the path of the ball down so when you play on astroturf you wet the field mm -hmm. so you'll see in international competition the field is wetted and that's so the ball will travel consistently and it will travel at speed and then the thing about a wet turf is if you fall you don't get the wicked turf burn yeah. like a, a rug burn um, so the, the players slide as opposed to just ripping the skin off their knees. Yeah. Um, but yeah, to coach on grass now, I mean, I played on grass growing up. It's just the way I equate field hockey and ice hockey and the different surfaces is like playing on a pond after it's snowed and then frozen. That's playing field hockey on grass. Mm -hmm. The puck is going to bounce all over the place. It's inconsistent and skill doesn't win the game. Yeah, You mentioned that in parts of the world, not in North America, it's a, a largely, not largely, but a pretty even distribution of men and women playing hockey. Um, how, how did field hockey develop as a, a woman's sport in, in terms of participation in in North America? Um, did um, I th So originally, um, Constance Appleby, who is a British woman, um, came and she actually grew up not very far from or she lived not very far from where i lived in england mm -hmm. but at most english people don't know the name constance appleby because it's a great name how, yes. how do you not know constance so she appleby? she lived in the new forest in in okay. hampshire the next county over from dorset yeah. she came over to to the u.s and ended up at bryn mawr mm -hmm. and she introduced field hockey to bryn mawr and it was introduced in a PE class to Bryn Mawr. And then my understanding is the, the, the other seven sisters, the oh. all-women colleges, yeah. got a hold of this. And it spread to the seven sisters, you know, the Mount Holyoaks and the Smiths and Swarthmores. And they started playing. So down field hockey in the Pennsylvania, particularly the Philadelphia area to this day is incredibly strong. Mm -hmm. And that's where our now US national team is doing their residency training um, because she then resided and stayed in that area and it just grew from her introduction. Yeah, yeah. Now in, in looking up a, a little bit of uh, research for this interview, um, a, a couple of 
mentions were made of Title IX helping fuel the growth of, of field hockey and addition of um, field hockey teams at the collegiate level. Can you speak to that a little bit? Like, has that happened over the last 20 to 25 years? And kind of how have you seen that growth um, happen? I, I came to the U.S. in 1984, and I came mm-hmm. here and sort of ended up um, at the time going to graduate school at UMass in Amherst where I became a grad assistant and field hockey was pretty firmly entrenched and that's over 30 years ago okay. and so field hockey in the US has been here for the last 50 years mm-hmm. um, it's been here for it was the sport for girls um, and I think through Constance Appleby in the introduction lacrosse has been the newer sport okay. to be sort of and it's interesting because lacrosse being a North American game, um, but field hockey has been here for a long, long time, and it was sort of the accepted sport for women. It was before women played soccer, um, and it was before women really were exposed to the sport of lacrosse. Yeah. Um, it was, you know, you could be a cheerleader or you could play field hockey, yeah. um, which I think in some respects, um, that sort of led to a little bit of the, the negative negativity around men playing field hockey because a lot of men saw it as just a women's sport here that it was introduced to the women and maybe through you know the growth of through the women's colleges whereas in the UK and the rest of the world um, field hockey is just another sport it's not a gender my, my club team in the UK there were six men's teams and three women's mm-hmm. like it it has a stronger male presence in a lot of places than it does a female. Yeah. And at, at university in, in England, would you, you don't necessarily play for the university team. You play for the club team no, or the county um, team? Or, no, when or, I, so the collegiate structure, sports and how sports are structured in the UK, there is no such thing as the NCAA, right. a governing body that's overseeing in the same way. But I went to a physical education college similar to Springfield College. Okay. So I played for my college team. And that college team had six women's field hockey teams. I see. On a Saturday, we'd have six women's field hockey teams, three lacrosse teams, netball, which is not played here. Um, So we would have all these people doing tons of sports. And lacrosse in the UK has got the same season as field hockey. And lacrosse is very much a private school game in England. So very few people play it. Okay. Um, But... Yeah, you play you play for your college team and you play. So when I was in college, I was playing for Sussex, the county that I the college was in. Because if you want to play and try out for a national team, you have to go through being selected for your county, your region, and then your country. Mm-hmm. So it would be like playing for Connecticut, playing for the Northeast, then playing for for the U.S. When you came to UMass Amherst, how how did that occur? You you graduated from university. And then um, I, what, I, what okay. fueled that impulse to, to come to the States? Um, that could be a whole nother discussion. <laughs> but um, I, I, so I graduated from PE college and I was teaching PE in a high school in Dover, uh, where the ferries go and the tunnel mm-hmm. is. And uh, so I was teaching there and I had a friend who had worked in a summer camp over here, coaching field hockey. Um, and was supposed to come over and at the last minute couldn't come and so I basically replaced a friend of mine. I had no interest in the United States coming here at that time in the sort of early 80s. I don't think the US people really were like, who cared about the US? Um, So I came and ended up at a um, 
Castleton State College in Vermont, mm-hmm. um, coaching field hockey, and it was basically being like being back at college. We just had a ball, and all I did was coach all day, play. We played competitive games with the other coaches. We had coaches from from Holland. We had coaches from the UK, from US, all over the world. They had brought coaches in to do this camp and we were there for two weeks and the camp paid our airfare to come here. And so it was a way to have an experience I never thought I would have. I went back to the UK and the teachers were called out on strike. And we're so this, unionized. Yeah. And this is UK 82, 1982. 82, 83. And yeah. so it's a very challenging time. So a time where politically I, yeah, and politically, culturally in, um, in the UK. And then as a, if you teach PE in England, you're expected to coach sports after school. That's, okay. you know, your expectation is you will coach all the different sports. You don't get paid extra. That's just part of what you're expected to do. So Monday through Thursday, you coach field hockey, you would coach soccer, you'd coach basketball, you'd offer a club after school. And the teachers were told to withdraw all, all goodwill services. So classroom teachers stopped marking homework assignments. Mm-hmm. We stopped doing you know, lunchtime duties and I had to stop my after school activities, which was really, those were the students that wanted to do sports. Yeah. You got through your day with all these other classes. So I was really disillusioned. Um, Is that in response to a thatcher driven yes, policy it was kind of, a or? it was a you're not getting any more money you know okay. the teachers thought they deserved more pay and the national union of teachers and it was it was the same very similar time to you know the miners had been on strike in the times when people think about billy elliott there was still a lot of unrest in the uk mm-hmm. uh, unions were strong and all teachers were unionized you had to belong to a union even if you chose not to um and so we we did go along with this, um, and I had a couple of, of people who said, Anne, you can go to the U.S. and get this grad assistantship type of thing, and I knew nothing about it. So I handed in my resignation, and I planned to come here, but I hadn't planned to come anywhere particular. I just thought I would come and have a year and travel around and see what happened. And literally the week before I left, we were having a leaving party for me, and the phone rang, and a woman from Holy Cross in Worcester said, I was given your name by somebody who you were at camp with. Um, I need an assistant coach. Would you come and coach with me? And I, you know, I think back now and just, I was like, well, where's Holy Cross? So she said in Worcester. I said, well, I know. Where's Worcester? I said, I know where Boston is. Is it close? (laughs) Um, And so she, long and short, um, her mother ran the family package store. Father had passed away. She said, you can work in the package store during the day. You can live at home with my, in my mother's house, and you can coach at Holy Cross. And I said, "Okay, sounds great." That's quite I mean, an introduction to literally. <laughs> and so I arrived. I coached. I coached camps all of that summer. I ended up at Holy Cross. I joined a club field hockey team. I met somebody who lent me a motorbike, and I used to ride the motorbike in Worcester. To the package store. To the pack, no, to the package store, and my job was to open the package store at nine in the morning. I yeah. didn't even know the money. I didn't have any, so my introduction to sort of American culture was selling, um, you know, Booze some really interesting, yeah, lo- Blackberry Manischewitz <laughs> at nine in the morning. And, uh, and coaching on the side. And then okay. I would leave at yeah. two in the afternoon and I would be given directions of how I would drive this athletic van. You know, I didn't even have my license really. Um, 
and I was driving all over the place with the JV team from Holy Cross and I was there for a, for a, until Christmas and then took my GREs, got accepted to UMass because I had some friends who'd gone through that system and then found out that actually they don't give out grad assistance mid-year. And mm. so I was like, oh, okay. So ended up living with a bunch of people I played club hockey with and then went, how am I going to pay for school? So I walked the streets of Northampton for two weeks and I was honest and I said to all the shopkeepers, look, I'm, I'm a foreign student. You legally cannot hire me. Will you hire me? Um, and the Blue Bonnet Diner in Northampton said, you can work in the kitchen. And I worked in the kitchen as a food prep for three twenty-five an hour, minimum wage, 40 hours a week. Oh, and I yeah. took all my classes at night so I could work in the diner in the day. So I had a bicycle. I rode to the diner, did my classes, I worked all day, ate as much for lunch because it was free, so I didn't have to buy food. Um, I did that until June, and then I found Amherst College had a head resident position, which was going to be housing. Applied for that position, got that position. The foreign students advisor at UMass went mad because we weren't supposed to work off campus, but I was like, I've been working in the diner for- I gotta get out uh, of the blue bonnet. Yeah, the, <laughs> the blue bonnet and the, the chef there, we had the diner and then there was a restaurant and there was a, a, a banquet and it's still there today. There's a banquet facility, so we would cater. Mm -hmm. And so he actually um, wanted me to stay and he wanted me to be his second chef. And I was like, thank you, no thank you. <laughs> um, and then while I was at, at Amherst doing my res head resident training, um, somebody got word to the field hockey coach that I had a field hockey background. So I got summons to the athletic department at Amherst and the head field hockey coach says, I need an assistant. Can you be my assistant? So I worked as a head resident, which was supposed to be 20 hours a week. I got an internship uh, grad assistant position at UMass doing all the intramural payroll. That was an awful job. And then I was the assistant field hockey coach at Amherst. Then I became assistant squash and an assistant lacrosse at Amherst that first year and then the second year I was the assistant at UMass so GA and earned your master's yes I earned my master's education at yep. UMass Amherst so amazing yeah. journey yeah <laughs> and now I got a foreign student scholarship because I applied for it and then when I got the grad assistant position I, I gave the scholarship back which when I look back I'm like <laughs> why, would I why did I do that I kept working at intermural yeah so it's been a journey for yeah. sure um, so f I, I, I knew a little bit about the piece from Amherst but yeah. following UMass you go to another NESCAC school and are down in New London at Connecticut College yep. coaching field hockey and lacrosse yep. is that correct yeah. so that sort of all um, Again, summer camp, it was the summertime, which often this is when it happens. Um, the head field hockey coach at Conn College, Peel Hawthorne, called me because I, I, I knew her from working camp. And she said, Anne, I've just, I've just got the head coaching job at William & Mary, which it was her alma mater. So she was going back there and she called me just asking if I knew anybody that might be interested to, to apply. And it was July. And at that time, I'd finished my master's and I was like, what am I going to do now? Because I didn't want to go back to the UK. I signed on to do a certificate of advanced graduate study. I didn't want to go on and do a PhD, but I wanted to stay in the country. I was working for a field hockey company selling equipment. Um, they were trying to get my visa for me to stay working for them. So when Peel called me, I thought, 
well, why wouldn't I apply for that job? It's, it's a coaching job. That that would be amazing. And so I applied and um, got interviewed. And I think because the timing was so late, they didn't have a huge applicant pool. Um, and it's always tricky hiring foreign coaches, but I was they offered me the job, they hired me, and then they told me that they would support my efforts you know, to go through getting a green card, but financially that would be my burden, but mm. they would provide the support. So I was on a one-year visiting faculty visa initially um, when I first got hired there, um, and then I just started the process right away to, to get my green card. And how long were you at Conn College, Connecticut For, College? 14 years. So 14 I'm years. 14 there and 14 here at Trinity. I'm, I'm sandwich. Yeah. And then when the position at Trinity opened up, talk, talk a little bit about that transition from New London up to up to Hartford. I, um, I had been Robin Shepard's arch rival, enemy, colleague, and really good friend for all the years. I remember when I was at Amherst, you don't forget Robin's voice ever. And so no. ever, yeah. and so yeah. as an assistant on the sideline at Amherst, one this woman who's dressed impeccably with this voice, there's only one Robin, and so we had become very good friends. Um, and there were some circumstances at Con; things were changing. There was transition happening down there in the athletic department, um, and I I was the senior women's administrator at Con, and so had been talking with Rick Hazelton because he had just told me that they were going to put a turf field in mm -hmm. here at Trinity, that that was his goal. They hadn't quite uh, raised the full funds, but that was where they were going. And um, so this is 99, 2000? This is 99, 2000 okay. that this was happening. Yeah. And so, you know, to be able to coach on a turf field is just, you know, that's what you're, you all, everybody wants to do that. Yeah. And so, you know, I I had, heard Rick talk about that and um, Robin had stepped down from coaching and she was now an administrator and Kara Tierney was head field hockey and head lacrosse and what happened here at Trinity is the faculty approved an additional position to split field hockey and lacrosse and so I will remember to this day being in the copy making some photocopies at con and seeing the job posted on a post on a board head field hockey coach Trinity College and I went wow I wonder if I should apply for that and like I said there was some dis there was some unrest at at con at, at the time we'd gone through a lot of different um, gone through a couple of different athletic directors change of president there was some things just sort of philosophical things happening that I just was not on the same page and I thought to myself you know you can battle things and it comes gets to a point where if you if you just philosophically don't agree then maybe maybe it's time for me to think about maybe doing something else or look somewhere else and so I didn't know if I could come to Trinity having played against Robin and the sort of the stereotype that we had of a Trinity student mm -hmm. playing against her in field hockey and lacrosse it was the five foot eight blonde tanned in Florida spring break lacrosse these Trinity girls would come in these convertibles and it was that that was the image of Trinity back then and I just was like I don't know if I really fit in this type of culture and so I actually came up here unbeknownst I'd applied I came up here and I I took a I sat in on an admissions info session just to see I wanted to hear how Trinity sold the school mm -hmm. I wanted to walk around as somebody not in an athletic 
capacity. Um, and get kind of an objective view of the place. Get an objective view of yeah. the place, yeah. the students, the feel I got <coughs> on campus. Um, Eddie Mighton, who was the soccer coach at the time, another English Real guy, character himself. Real, real colorful character, yeah. had been at Kong College. Okay. And so yeah. I knew Eddie, and so I actually came up and I met with Eddie, had lunch, and sort of I really did a lot of researching and soul-searching before when Rick did offer me the position, I was in a position to say, you know what, if I'm going to jump, I'm going to leap with two feet. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to make this work. Yeah. Um, I, I feel a kind of kindred connection for coming from Wesleyan. And uh, that it's a, it's a challenging um, transition to go from a, a rival peer institution to a, a different college. But when you get the objective view and see the quality of the students and see the quality of the institution, then you make that jump and have a really rewarding professional experience. Yeah. So. I mean, I remember in the early 90s playing here when before the Magnet Middle School and the um, Know, the performing arts center was built that mm-hmm. those you know my memory those were boarded up buildings yeah and we played on the grass we were very close to broad street did not have the same feel that it does today and where the robin l shepherd field is now you know we're sort of flanked by how nice the school is and yeah. those were all just burnt out buildings and, and now you have the learning corridor, the learning corridor boys and girls yeah. club trinfo cafe yeah and and, and you know Trinity Towers, a real neighborhood. Yeah, uh, so everything has changed. It's changed a lot. Amazing journey. And now in your 14th year, associate professor. Um, One of your your teaching responsibilities, I know you've coached the or taught the coaching seminar, which um, in the physical education department deals a lot with teaching methodology, coaching methodology, but also gets into coaching philosophy. Um, when you when you taught that class, how did you present and um, outside philosophies and, and also your own philosophy on, on coaching to the students who you who you taught in that course? Um, you know, and I realize sort of the longer you do this, um, as my mom says, as we get older, uh, we might as well get smarter. So, mm-hmm. you know, I try to sort of reflect on how I was as a young coach and I've been really fortunate with all my grad assistants that a number of our graduate assistants have Kate Livesay for one then been hired to become head coaches and to be able to sort of work with them mentor them and then stand on the sideline and see them growing and developing and maybe sort of having some experiences that I had when I was younger, but being able to maybe guide them away from some things that I did that I can look back and say, oof, that was not a good decision. Um, But what I did with my class was I tried to bring in people who I thought in our department had very different approaches than me. Mm -hmm. Um, So people who ran practice different to me, people who um, have a different background. being trained as a physical education person, you know, it, and you can say old school is, um, I, I'm, there's certain things for me that, that just don't cut it because that's how I was trained. Yeah. But sort of being a little bit more open-minded to what we're doing with student athletes, but I'm still very particular in what I like to do in, with that class was practice planning for me is really important. You can't, if you're going to be successful, you can't wing it. Um, you you can certainly be have a relaxed temperament about how you present your material, but having an overarching 
plan and goal is really important. And somebody both for individual practice with a lesson plan, but also as a on a macro on level a, yes. to have a plan for the season, season for the year. Yep. Yeah. Um, you know, and somebody some years ago said this to me that I'm a very visual learner. Um, if you don't have goalposts on the field, where do your players know where to run? Mm-hmm. And you know, we don't know where to aim or shoot. And yeah. I think that's such an analogy that I think of. If you take the game of soccer, field hockey, lacrosse, and take the goal cages off, you have nothing. Yeah. And so that sort of metaphor, both in my life and for my students, is setting either a goal or a collection of goals that are moving you in a direction is how you then develop the individual student athlete, your program, and create that culture. Um, and so I may go out to practice, and I know Robin always used to think I used to wing it. Um, I said, Robin, my practice, it's written on the board in the office. I look at what I've written for most of the day. My grad assistant and I create that practice plan together. It then gets written down by me, not computer. I handwrite it. It's in my folder. The folder comes out, and then the folder often just sits on the bench because now it's the hard drive. It's in my brain. Um, I like to then... I always say that rules are for fools. Um, I may have a drill or a session that starts to grow and morph in a completely different different direction. And rather than, you know, as a young coach, I would look and go, it's 3.56, we need to change the drill. Um, I'm now much more comfortable letting something develop, grow, and transition into something completely different if it's going in, in a good, positive direction for the team and what what we're working on the way that you described your team's style of play with a blend of skill and aggression mm-hmm. of attacking style does that is that fair to define kind of as as a uh, symbolic representation of you and your coaching philosophy like is that is that um, fair prob- probably yeah. um i mean i think i've learned to listen more than i used to when i was a young coach mm-hmm. um and I, I certainly now, I, I like a lot of student input and I realize that, especially having had the captains I had this past year, them being the pulse and heartbeat of the team, um, I tell them that, you know, the captain is the one who's, who's piloting the ship and I can't, I can't be determined to go to a destination if my crew's jumping ship and swimming ashore. Mm -hmm. We all need to arrive together. But determining where that destination is, their input to me is vitally important. And I realize now students have changed over my years of coaching. Um, It's not coaching by committee, but it's certainly, I allow much more input from them, my grad assistants, before I'll make a decision about whatever it is we're, we're making yeah. decisions and about that personnel changes every year and yeah. i think that adjustability and flexibility you know that the team will have a different style of play based on the 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 group of the four years of students who are there at that time and yeah. when people ask me how the the rowing team you know what what's the ethos of the team i'm like well there's a kind of central pillars that we build it around yeah. but the members of the team define that every year yeah. with their work ethic and their approach and their pursuit of their individual goals and the way that we go about that and i realize also you know we're putting you know, de- depending on the squad size, and I tend to keep a smaller squad, we're putting, you know, 19, 20, 21 people 
together that come from very different either walks of life, very different majors on campus. The one thing that they all love is this 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 sport, but um, I've learned to treat each of them differently. They are part of our team, but they all have individually different needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that I realize I have, I have many more individual meetings. Um, I'm available more than I think I used to be. And I think the things like eating lunch in Mather, taking time, realizing that your players you mean an, a lot to your players, but you also wear an awful lot of hats for your players from helping them choose their courses to counseling them through difficult things that they might be dealing with at home or on campus, um, the loss of a family. We, we cover the gamut. And so we play this, we're this adult in their life for four years that the emphasis has always been so strongly on sort of winning and all. I realize and what I tell prospectives parents now is that my job is really, I have an excuse to be with your, your daughter for four years and I am sort of the adult in this storm um, and hopefully the one that then can keep the boat afloat. Yeah. And field hockey is the excuse to be able to do that. Yeah. Um, I know your, your team and a lot of others around you draw a lot of inspiration, <clears throat> pardon me, from your own personal drive and the the things that you've achieved um in the admissions office there's a picture of you standing atop everest Mm -hmm. um as i said in the intro mount cotopaxi in ecuador highest active volcano on earth um a 21,000 20,000 foot peak denali mount mckinley where did your drive to achieve um, those summits and, and to pursue mountaineering. Where, where did that come from? Where did that start? Um, again, and when I was in middle school, we ha- actually had a music teacher who I don't even know, a notice went up that she was going to take a group up to the Lake District in England and we were going to have this two-week outdoor pursuits experience um, and we could sign up for it and I, I think it was probably over the Easter vacation somewhere around then. Um, and so we went off in a bus, had no idea where the heck we were going. And, you know, we had a, an equipment list. And so, um, you know, my mum knitted a big Aaron sweater for me and we had to get these mountaineering boots. And uh, we based out of a one-room church schoolhouse. So it was a stone church that was used as a, as a schoolroom years ago. And we had canvas tents with no no ground sheets and we dug a trench down the middle of the tent that the water ran underneath the tent and didn't completely soak us uh slept on the ground no insulation froze our rear ends off um we went out every day with a guy who was a scottish guy who was part of the mountain rescue service and mountaineering orienteering rock climbing we did a mountain rescue we slept outside and I just loved it. Yeah, loved it. It was we were freezing, we were starving. Um, we were, we had like a big slab of cheese, a Mars bar, an apple, and some cookies, and that was lunch. And it was just one of those things that I came back and I, you know, I look back and I realized that, you know, it was mixed. It was boys and girls. There was no distinction that you were a male or a female in a sport. We were just a group of kids all together, and we could achieve the same things. Um, and so I was first exposed then. Um, the next time I climbed, really, our sports center at home had a very rudimentary sort of brick in, brick out climbing wall. Um, and so I did go on the climbing wall. And then my first year, 
um, at college we did f like a first year orientation camp and there was rock climbing and all this other stuff and when I came back from camp back to the sports center that I, I got really good friends with four guys who were climbing there and that became a, a friendship that I maintained throughout my four years in college we started climbing outside mm -hmm. um, and so I started climbing seriously with them on the sea cliffs roped climbing technical climbing and then my second year at college I chose outdoor education as my sort of secondary um, emphasis through, yeah. and so I did it throughout college then. Uh, of those three climbs that I mentioned, Denali, Cotopaxi, and Everest, which was the most technically demanding, like where you had to summon kind of the resources as an outdoors woman and mountaineer to, to, to conquer, to, to, to summit? Um, I would say Denali, Denali is a huge mountain, and mm -hmm. a lot of people talk about it that the way it, where it's located uh, in Alaska and its latitude, it actually presents like a Himalayan peak. It's, um, mm. you know, it's it's twenty one thousand, but it actually presents the Earth's atmosphere is a little bit thinner the further north you go, and so um, that mountain, you know, no Sherpa support everything you're taking you're carrying yourself so we had very heavy packs we also had to drag a sled that was equally the same amount of weight so about 60 pounds of weight in your sled and we were on snowshoes and you're tied together where you're all roped together because of crevasses so i control the person's sled in front from when you're going downhill so that it doesn't take your legs out um, so physically it was very hard mm -hmm. but emotionally if the guy behind me didn't control my sled it would just take me out and then I would lose control of the person's sled in front of me so that was a really very difficult mountain Some intimate teamwork and, yeah and, and yeah. so that was that was a really <clears throat> and we had a really interesting group on that that didn't really get a lot you know again the dynamics of the group made it very challenging and we attempted the summit and were turned around um, and so I didn't know if we would summit and ended up sitting it out next day managing to summit but it was we'd already had gone a good ways the day before so physically we were pretty wiped on our summit day yeah. um, that, that was pretty hard um, a mountain that we climbed uh, Arma de Blom in the Himalayas I climbed in the winter of 1999 my I'd only been here a short time um, with my friend Michael Codis who went on and wrote the book that was also uh, about our 2004 Everest. Arma de Blom was a very challenging climb because um, that technically is much more demand. That is a, a technical climb um, where you're climbing pretty steep sections using what's called a jumar which ascends the rope. So you're, you're at high altitude climbing a rope not on the, on the snow or on the rock um, and on our summit day, uh, a guy on a different expedition broke through a, a crevasse and Mike and I actually had to rescue somebody out of the crevasse before we could continue on our summit. Oh, um, and so we didn't know if we'd have enough time. So there was the emotions of rescuing this guy called Brendan out of the crevasse. And uh, he was injured, but he was able to go down on his own. But of course, we wanted to continue our summit. So we actually summited really late. It was after two in the afternoon. So we were coming down. It was getting dark, and, and then I um, felt like I had uh, high-altitude uh, pul pulmonary edema. Uh, I was told I had high-altitude bronchitis, but I was really having a hard time breathing after that summit. And so getting down off that peak 
that was a yeah I, that was a, a pretty challenging s- summit do you have something coming up is there a, another i'm always pe- dreaming and yeah. scheming yeah. always dreaming and scheming i my goal right now is i i was doing my american mountain guides uh, alpine course last year in uh, wyoming on it was an incredibly snowy uh season and i tore my medial collateral uh post hold fell downhill with my pack and rope on couldn't get my leg out of the hole tore my mcl um, and so i'm going back in june to finish that course so right now my goal is to do that um but yeah i have a yearning to get back to the big mountains um it's always yearning it's expensive however but well i can't wait to hear about the next the next climb um and thank you so much for coming in and and talking this was a a wonderful conversation best of luck to you and the team and in seasons upcoming and we'll have to have you back on the show um so again coach parmenter thank you so much for speaking with me um to eben in the booth and to the mill for the recording space Episodes of the Faculty Profile can be found on the Trinity College SoundCloud page. Go to soundcloud.com and search Trinity College. And the Faculty Profile is on Twitter, at Faculty Profile. You can link to old episodes, leave comments, and suggest future guests for the show. Hope you enjoyed this conversation, and check back soon for more episodes of the Faculty Profile podcast.